Welcome to More Than Your Number, a podcast on the Enneagram and personal growth. I'm Teresa McBean, Enneagram practitioner, pastor, wife of over four decades to the same patient and long-suffering husband, mom to three, and Mimi to two practically perfect grandchildren. I am so glad you have joined me for this podcast focused on using the Enneagram as it was intended, as a map for personal growth. Well, welcome to More Than Your Number, a podcast on the Enneagram and personal growth, and a particular welcome to Steph Baron Hall today. She's going to be joining me to talk about all things Enneagram, which I just love more than anything, and I just so appreciate you being willing to to join me. So thanks, Steph. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I know that one little piece of business that we can do right now is people are going to die to know who you are, how they can get in touch with you, and how they can hear more of your wisdom, and all that's going to be down in the notes, because you're doing so much. I mean, it would take the whole podcast time to just list it right here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're going to get in the notes, but and I want to talk specifically about some of those things as we go through, too, because yeah. they're so fascinating. But how are you doing today? Doing okay, yeah. Um, making it through. I got here, so that's good. <laughs> Very good. That's excellent. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. All right. So tell everybody about you. Um, let's start off with the basics. Tell them about your type. I am an Enneagram three. Mm. Um, yes. So, I mean, that's like. Really not all you need to know, but sometimes I like to say that. <laughs> um, so I'm a social three in particular. Okay. Um, and I mean, we can definitely talk more about that journey, like finding my type and everything. Um, but for me, using some other modalities, I actually did think I was a self-preservation three. Okay. Um, but using, you know, the approach to the Enneagram we're both trained in with, with, um, being Aranio, um, it's pretty clear that I'm a social three. So like doubling down on that image piece there. Okay. So you and I have been at CP Enneagram Academy, which is where we met each other. Mm-hmm. And one of the yeah. things that, um, we may as well jump right into it because you've mentioned both being social and thinking you were self-preservation is mm-hmm. I think you and I both agree that their subtype is pretty special sauce. Uh, you yeah. want to explain that and tell me why you like it as, as well as I do. Sure. So, yes. Yeah, so when it comes to subtypes and, and looking at, you know, the instincts, um, self-preservation, social and sexual, um, you know, there are a lot of schools of thought where you look at them separate and you say, okay, this is the instinct that I really identify with. And mm-hmm. this is how this plays out for me. And um, there are some schools of thought where people do that. And, with the way that being Aranio, I mean, I, I know that Aranio does tend to teach the instincts a little bit separate and B is more the one who's like, no, 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 always with the subtype. We can't make generalizations, you know. Um, but even with that, I think what I started seeing is, you know, when I listen to them talk about the growth paths for each of the subtypes, one, it gets really specific. And even, you know, I, I do have a, a 
workshops where a series of workshops where I teach subtypes and I do teach specific growth paths for each one. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's actually kind of what helps me figure out my subtype with a little bit more clarity because yeah, what they recommend for the self-preservation was like a little uncomfortable. Um, but when they started talking about the social three in particular, I was like, Oh, I might have a heart attack if I do that. Like, so, um, and how stretching that was for me. I think that that is really why that stood out. Yeah. So what they taught us was that the way they teach it is you've got the three instincts. One of them's dominant. Mm -hmm. One of them's repressed. One of them's secondary, which is more relatable and more balanced a little bit. And then when you marry your type with your dominant subtype, that's where you really get the subtypes. That makes 27 Mm -hmm. subtypes. And that what we're learning, and particularly, I'm a six. So Mm -hmm. in particular, sixes, the three subtypes look wildly different. And I'm a social six. So I did not initially resonate with all this language around sixes being afraid of everything. Mm -hmm. Um, that really didn't resonate with me. And so the subtype, the specificity of the subtype really helped me. Yeah. Uh, What about you? You said that you, one of the things is if you get the 27 subtypes, you get a really specific Mm -hmm. growth path, which makes Mm -hmm. perfect sense to me. Um, And I love, was that one of the ways that you really finally were able to differentiate your, your dominant instinct was your resistance to the suggested growth path for your dominant instinct or discomfort maybe? Yeah, I think so. And also um, the other thing I think is just um, that they also talk about as well. And and I teach this too, and I'm sure you do as well um, is looking at how much of an impact that instinct had in my regular life. Like, Obviously, when we talk about the Enneagram, we're looking at why you do what you do. But when you look at instincts, what we're really looking at is like, how does this show up? Like, how is it actually playing out? How is it running the show in ways that you're unaware of? Um, And even in ways that you're like, you know, you know, not even able to see, not even unaware of, but like resistant to seeing, like really reluctant to seeing. Right. Um, Like, how are you being... I just get this image of when I was a kid, I had a St. Bernard dog. I love dogs. Um, I had my little St. Bernard rescue and he was not little. He was like 130 pounds. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just get this image of him dragging me down the street. Right. Like, um, and that's kind of what the dominant instinct is doing to us. You know, it's, it's really like this big old animal that's just dragging us around our lives and um learning to be like okay like let's reel this in a bit like let's get some training happening let's you know see how much of an outsized impact that this thing is having and so that we can actually get some space from it um and see it differently yeah so what do you think are the the distinguishing differences of being a three between the three mm-hmm. subtypes how would how would a three recognize where they're dominant instinct is playing such an important part in their life. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting because for me, this, you know, the social three is known to be the most three of all the threes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
you know, I definitely resonate with that in a lot of ways. Um, and some in other ways, not so much, but the social three tends to be the person who is really comfortable being on stage. They kind of like to be out in front of people. They tend to like really want to gain a level of expertise that they can then use to get prestige to, um, you know, teach others to show others, you know, kind of like the right way of doing things, but not necessarily in the one-ish way, but more in, in this sense of like being the role model, you know, um, and being somebody that other people will admire because a lot of, you know, we talk a lot about success with threes, but I actually think with threes, it's more about worth and it's more about, um, admiration, Mm -hmm. um, than it really is about success. It's just that we've all learned from a young age that being successful is how we get that worth and admiration. Mm, That's an important Um, distinctive. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think about that with the social three, um, I also think about, um, just the, the real awareness of like power structures, Um, And the sense of like knowing how to walk into a room and not only belong in that room and like blend in a sense, but also to kind of come out on top. Right. In a sense. Yeah. Um, And then I think about self-preservation threes who tend to be, we we call them vain about not being vain, right? So they um, tend to be the ones who would actually, they really want the admiration deep down. They really want that like sense of worth and they still get a lot of worth from productivity, but um, they want to be good. And there's a lot of perfectionism there too. Um, I think with social threes, at least for me, it's more about the perfection in terms of image, but the the self-preservation three has like a perfectionism in almost like a one-ish way. But Mm -hmm. again, it's feeding that, inner sense of like worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think of them as the ones who are like, I, somebody told me one time, I actually did a series of interviews about all the types, um, or all the subtypes. And so I have like all this, you know, these responses from people. And somebody said, I want to plan everything to a T and like be the most incredible event planner ever. And I want everyone to know that this mm-hmm. is like the best event they've ever, ever been to. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to be on the stage getting the accolades, but mm. I would love to hear to walk by somebody who's talking about how it's the best event. Interesting. And so like they want that feedback, but it feels like too much to get everyone to point at them, you know, but they tend to be more focused on like security um, and those sorts of things. And, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about sometimes how self-preservation threes might have a harder time, even if they have like a big idea, they might have a harder time actually going for it um, in terms of like moving into entrepreneurship because um, leaving a steady paycheck feels just way too scary. Yeah. 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 I love this idea of countertype and that's right. Mm -hmm. Self-preservation three is the countertype. So there's something about the behavioral traits of the instinct that doesn't quite jive with the traits that you'd see in the type. And I think that makes for a lot of mistyping of people who are countertypes, um, but mm-hmm. also really interesting to have a more nuanced conversation about whatever type. And t- today, of course, we're talking about threeness, but just not like flattening and making every type of character. I don't like yeah. that, you know, because yeah. it it doesn't allow space for, in this instance, the SP3 to find their place in the typology. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think I do see a lot of SP3s getting mistyped as ones. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes eights, interestingly, as well, huh. like um, just maybe slightly more assertive and um, slightly less emotional mm-hmm. um, than even though they're still in the heart center, <laughs> they're right. still in there. Um, but yeah, and then the sexual three, I think they get mistyped as twos a lot. Um, they tend to be, you know, working to present that image of whoever they need to be to the people that they specifically want to help and support. So I've actually seen a lot of sexual threes be like coaches um, because they're really good at connecting with those specific people and then supporting those people. And they kind of almost see like their client success as their own success sometimes. Right. Um, Like I'm only as successful as my you know, least successful client type of thing, um, which does present all sorts of issues when you're a coach and that <laughs> you are. Um, yeah, now tied to somebody else's competency too. Right. That would be scary, right, for Social 3 in particular, or I guess SB3 too. Like when you guys look at your Sexual 3 compatriots, you're like, you're tying your competency to somebody else? That would feel scary. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. And I think it's really interesting because, so, you know, I don't know how much you've talked about our, the program that we're in so far on this, um, on your podcast, but like, it's very intensive, you know, like I described it to a friend of mine who was getting a different accreditation and they were like, what? <laughs> you know? Um, but one of the parts of it is case studies. Right. And I was talking with somebody and they're like, well, aren't you a three? Like, wouldn't you want to be the most efficient? Cause you're doing it with a group. And I was like, I do want to be efficient. I don't ever want to be graded on somebody else's work. So we, in our group, we decided we're just going to rewrite everything in our own words and turn it in, even though we did work. As a group. Gosh, you know, this is such a great example because one of the things that I wanted to ask you about with threes is, I heard somebody say about threes, and I immediately thought of you, that threes intuitively walk into a setting and know the pathway to success. Mm. Do you feel Mm -hmm. that that's true? Is that instinctual for you? It probably is true. I think it's very instinctual, yeah. Mm -hmm. So when I was trying to decide about how to do my case studies as a social six, Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do it with a group because I didn't want to put myself in a position of maybe disagreeing with somebody and reacting really strongly to it because I also did not want my grade to be affected. I, I wanted it to be, for lack of a better word, authentically and completely my work. Mm-hmm. But it never occurred to me to do it like that. So uh, what I had to do mm-hmm. is wrap myself around the axle and decide that it would be an growth work for me to just be myself. And if I get reactionary about something, which I did, um, I was just going to have to accept that and deal with it and that, that it would be a learning curve for me. But if I could have come up with that idea, that's what I would have done. But as a six, it would have, a social six, it, that did not occur to me. And I spent a lot of time ruminating about how to uh, achieve success in my competing values. 
because I also really wanted a little bit of a check and balance in terms of, you know, it's uncomfortable for a social six to also, because we deal with self-doubt. So I kind of also wanted to have check and balance in terms of my own ideas. Yeah, yeah. But I think my sexual competitive secondary instinct also Mm -hmm. didn't want to put product out there. And we've all been in group projects before where, you know, you're like, I could have gotten a better grade if Susie over there hadn't been on the team. But, you know, (laughs) that to me is so fascinating that you figured out sort of a workaround about that. Well, you know what's funny is, like, I cannot emphasize how little I thought about that. <laughs> I mean, that's what they say. You guys just yeah. go for it. You just know what to do. And meanwhile, the sixes is over there spinning our wheels, you know. Could have been really obvious. Well, it's funny. Yeah, because I, so a six reached out to me and said, like, hey, um, I think it was at the beginning of our five-day training. She's like, hey, like, I'm work on the case studies and would you want to work on it with me um and I'm gonna throw this out there and like this is what I'm thinking and then let me know at the end of the training I'll circle back and you know you can just think about it inside and I was like no no no, like no need I'll just yeah let's do it (laughs) and like I just she's like okay well I'm just gonna let you think about it you know wow Um, which I appreciate obviously like I appreciate that that desire to like make sure that I'm not going to get in a spot where I like said yes too quickly or something but I also um in that instance was like yeah this is like not a big thing for me like let's just do it let's do it let's do it I love that I love that example so much well did you have any struggles on your Enneagram journey in terms of typing or finding your instinct or Mm -hmm anything that was hard or did you just like the other example did you just kind of know you were three yeah so um let's see I have been using a different motivation-based personality tool Mm -hmm. um prior so I had kind of been thinking about this concept of motivation for a while um and the tool that I had used the you know, things were assertive, altruistic, and analytical. And then kind of the hub spot was like in the, the middle, all three of them. And so I was definitely more on like the assertive, altruistic, like those were kind of my blend. Um, so I had been thinking about that quite a bit. And then my sister, first my husband actually asked me to get into it. I was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I'm not good. I'm good. Uh, and then my sister was like, hey, you should look into this. Um, and so I just took a random online test and it came up and said the achiever. And I was like, yes, I won, you know, <laughs> and then pretty quickly I was like, Oh, I actually hate this, you know? Yeah. But yeah. Is that what this means? It's ugh. right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I, I think for me, I felt really exposed. Like I felt like, um, wait, people can see this. Like people oh, can yeah. see me mm-hmm. shifting. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had recently become aware of, really how much I did shapeshift. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really embarrassed by that. Um, mm-hmm. Like you get all these messages, be, just be yourself, you know, be who you are, be authentic, be you. And it's like, okay, but who is that really? Like, right. I think for a three, right. um, that's a big question. Mm-hmm. And 
but I did actually struggle to really feel like I was my type for a couple different reasons. Um, one, my sister hates it when I say this, but she actually thought I was a four. Um, probably because the last time she lived with me was when I was in high school and like based on that, yeah, maybe, you know, right. <laughs> like I right. seem like a four. Um, but but that really swayed my perspective on myself because, which makes a lot of sense because it's like, I am the image I present to the world. Like that's the passion of the three, self-deceit. Like I am what I do. I am the image I present. So naturally I was like, well, maybe I think I'm a three. I want to be a three somehow, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is a lot of the books talk a lot about specific aspects of the three that I don't truly resonate with, like being unemotional um, or uh, goals or like being super organized. Like I don't really resonate with those things. And for me, um, you know, it was just hard to get past that. And so just having like a regular human level of emotion made me think that I was a four. Ah, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, we've talked before about your like not really resonating with the goal thing. And Mm -hmm. so when I was uh, wrestling with this idea that threes just intuitively know how to succeed, like they don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I again thought of you and I thought, I wonder if it is true for threes or if it is specifically true for you. If it's that instinctual, why would you even need goals? <laughs> right? Yeah. Is, does that make yeah. sense? Like, The rest of us have to maybe understand you as having the capacity to see the golden ticket at the end of the road. The rest of us would have to have goals to achieve it. But why would a three? They would just like know what the steps are to get from A Mm -hmm. to D. What do you think about that? No, I think that makes sense. And I think it's almost like they're just thoughts or like aspirations. Mm-hmm. Um, but even calling the goals sometimes I think is too defined because my experience, especially, you know, with myself, but also with doing typing interviews, um, is that a lot of threes say that they have abstract goals. Like I want to buy a house by the time I'm 30. Okay. Like that is specific because there's definitely a time attached to it but when I talk with threes who have goals like that it's not like they're like and this is how much I'm saving every month to get there this is what I'm doing this like it's not always that thought out for some threes it is um for a lot of threes I don't think it's necessarily like that or like I want to write a children's book okay you know that's a very open-ended goal um and so I and I also talked with a lot of threes who don't define them as goals and aspirations because they're kind of like, um, they don't think through the steps, right? So Mm -hmm. they don't think through, Mm -hmm. um, how can I actually get there? And I can tell you when this kind of came to light for me and now I can reflect back on it and like 
see the little three. Um, when I was, gosh, I must've been like nine. And like, do you remember Stacy Arrico? Yes. Okay. So she, her album started coming out and I think she was like either 10 or 12 when her first album came out. And I'm not like really the most musical. Like I, no one would ever pay to hear me sing. Like definitely not. But that, that age I didn't know that <laughs> right so I but I was I loved it I was really interested in it and I was like I can remember this sinking feeling of like when I turned 12 or whatever the age was I was like I I didn't do it I didn't publish an album by the time I was 12 yeah, yeah. like I can remember that is that amazing sense. and at the time I think people would have been like what what is happening with you? But I think that's just how my brain is like attaching to some thought or idea Mm -hmm. and really wanting to make it happen, but not always necessarily saying like, okay, these are the goals. These are the steps. So talk to me about what the perception or the reality of failure would be like for a three. Yeah. Um, I mean, it seems probably to the rest of us that feeling like a bit like you failed at at an idea you had at 12, like I'm totally over the hill, (laughs) you know, is just such a sweet little story. But it must not be necessarily a sweet experience to be the person who feels that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think so something I teach a lot in my courses, my workshops and everything when I work with teams um, is this concept of the threshold. I teach it a lot about eights. Like they have a different threshold for what feels like conflict. Mm -hmm. So that that's like really important, but I also think it extends to other numbers. So I think threes have a different threshold for what feels like failure. And, and what I mean by that is like, it's much lower. Right. So, um, like any little thing can feel like failure. Mm. Um, and so threes are constantly feeling like they're not doing enough, um, because that sense of impending failure is so close, right? Like it's so Mm. threatening. And I'm actually in a space right now, like you're catching me on this week where, um, it's been really, really rough. Like I definitely feel like I am in like a season of failure right now and really having to rethink things. And it's been really, really challenging because I hate it. And also I like went into this season thinking that success was a sure thing. Mm. Mm. And to see it all totally fall flat has been pretty like devastating. Mm. Um, And it's hard. Like, it's really like, I think people have an expectation that threes bounce back quickly all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways, yes, but in other ways it can be a lot to process. And when you truly give yourself time to grieve, you know, those expectations, it can be really difficult. Do you think that maybe part of discomfort with thinking about goals might be a little bit of a way, a Jedi mind trick for a three to help them not have to think too much about failure? Mm-hmm. I do. And I think too, like not, not planning things out 
it's like, well, I didn't try my hardest, hardest. Like if I tried my hardest, hardest, then I would have made it, you know? Right. Um, but what I'm talking about right now, like I did try my hardest, hardest, (laughs) like I did all the plans, all the steps. I did everything I was supposed to do. And, you know, it's heartbreaking. Um, yeah, that's just, it's just hard to take. Well, what about mm-hmm. this uh, idea that slowing down or stopping feels like death? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really do resonate with that in a way that I don't think I was able to see before. And I think, um, it it makes sense. Like we can see the through line there, right? Because when we think about how, like for me as a three, if all of my worth and like my, like who I am, my identity, like my value as a human is tied up in how well I'm doing, um, is tied up in how productive I am. It like makes sense Mm -hmm. that it feels like death. Um, and I think, it's particularly hard for like someone like myself who like I own my own business. It's, it literally is a thing where like, if I'm not working, nothing gets done. So it kind of is feeding right into the fixation, but it's also like kind of the downfall too, because it's like, I mean, I would love to take a day off. I mean, I do take days off of course, but like, I would love to be like, you know what, I'm just going to leave for a couple of weeks and, um, even just me thinking about that now and like the amount of work it would take right. for me to take that extended break feels like a lot. Right. Know? Right. Yeah. Um, but I also think, you know, one of my first jobs out of college, so I, my undergrad degrees in um, psychology. So my first jobs out of college were working with people with developmental disabilities um, in various forms. And, Um, I worked at a day program um, for adults with developmental disabilities. And we had some really tough behavioral cases and um, different things like that. But one of the core tenets of this organization was like the inherent value and inherent worth of every human being just by like being human. So these are people who society has said like, you're not performing, so you're not worth anything. Mm -hmm. And restoring that sense of dignity to these people. And I think for me as a three, that was really healing because Mm. I was like, why would I say that about these people? Like, and I I see their worth and their value, um, even when they're not quote unquote producing in the way that society says a human should, but they're there and they're, they have all this worth and value, just who they are and as they are. And like, how could I say that about them and not about myself? Um, And so it really started to challenge that concept a lot. Yeah. That makes so much sense to me. Almost like coming through the back door made it more acceptable than if you had had to start with self-acceptance and Mm self-worth, right? That you could apply it backwards. Well, you know, there's a vicious rumor out there that um, one of the growth paths for threes is seeing failure differently. Maybe this is one of those questions that's too soon because it's maybe you need to come back in a month and tell me, answer this question. But what do you think when you see, we've talked about it before, that when the value, I think, of well, there's just tons of value, but Part of the thing that really attracted me to be in Uranio's work 
was that it was rigorous and Mm -hmm. that these three subtypes gave you a very specific path forward. They're things to observe. They're questions to ask. They're things to do. Mm -hmm. And when you read them, you cannot imagine that you would ever actually implement that. So I think, yay, that's good. Um, But... One of the things for threes that I've heard is reevaluating failure as having some value in and of itself. What do you think about that? Since you're in a week where you're feeling not your most successful self. Mm-hmm. Well, I do think that there's value in it. And also in terms of like, letting it sink in, I think I have to be really careful not to just skip the hard bits and to use it to pivot. Does that make sense? So like, totally, it's really easy for me to go into solutions mindset and be like, okay, well, this didn't work. So this is how things are changing. This is what we're going to do. This is like, like pivot and go. Right. Um, and so I can see how useful it is in this moment. I mean, it sucks. Like it sucks. And I'm like pretty stressed out. Like things are tough. Um, and pretty disappointed. Like, I think it's really, everyone's like, don't take it personally. It's like, it feels really personal though, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I just, you know, I hate when people are like, don't, um, just see it as data, not as failure. And I'm like, I'm sorry seriously (laughs) yeah this is a little bit of denial here right it's more than data it's data that that i i had this bar and i didn't i didn't jump over the moon of it It, that's called failure you know failure to achieve my my goal or my my desired endpoint yeah yeah so i think i will have to like sit in it and think about it um and kind of tease those things out because I do see how it's useful in a specific way. And I think that maybe a month, two months, Mm -hmm. three months, a year down the road, I'm going to see it differently too, you know? Right. Um, And so for me, some of my values are like, I walk the talk, right? So if I am, you know, working with a client, like a coaching client, and I tell them, um, and they say like, okay, well, how do I actually move through this, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, here's some resources, or I'm like, okay, well, you know, try journaling or whatever. Like, I'm not going to tell people stuff that I'm not willing to do myself. I think that actually, this is a thing that I think comes up a lot in in Enneagram spaces. I think we've talked about this, but like, I'm really aware of the stereotype that threes are fake, so I do everything I can to make sure that I'm always being like, like adjusting and, and noticing and readjusting to, to not be like being fake basically. Um, anyway, so one of my values is like, I walk the talk and then another one is just like always learning. And so looking at those two things and being like, okay, how can I apply those in this day? Like if I were my own mm-hmm. client, how mm-hmm. would I apply those mm-hmm. today? Yeah. Um, And so trying to be really cognizant of that and to be kind to myself, even when it's really hard. 
Yeah, so you have one of the things about the Enneagram being sort of a map for human development is you're able, whether it's a client with a particular type or yourself, it's it's sort of in a way almost like a cheat sheet because you kind of have a map to know what you need to be paying attention to, mm-hmm. which I just think is, yeah. you know, you're not having to reinvent the wheel with each client or you're not having to have a new experience when something doesn't quite work out for you, you know really specifically what you need to do. You know mm-hmm. what values you need to lean into. And I would imagine they would be pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, kind of being able to say, okay, well, I hear what you're saying here, but what's beneath that? And like kind of asking those questions it just makes it easier to get at those questions and to see that tendency or the temptation. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if whatever is actually happening is not quote unquote stereotypical for the type, there sometimes is some thread there um, that we can work from. And so I I do think that it's extremely helpful in that sense. Um, Just in that, I mean, I do think this is like the whole reason I was drawn to the Enneagram, but it also is like kind of a frustrating part about it of the blind spots. Like it just illuminates blind spots constantly. And it's like, Oh, we didn't see that one. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you and I talked about this before that um, I love um, being Uranio's new book, the Enneagram guide to waking up. And mm-hmm. when I got to six and I was reading that first descriptive chapter, description of the six is a zombie which is a metaphor they use for each of the nine types I was like I don't really have much emotional resonance with this at all it it seems true enough but you know come on I want to go on and read the part about the growth path so I can make sure that you know I'm doing it right but then just the reading of that stirred up enough that over the next month I'd say I had several memories that are like oh, that's exactly what I did. And I mm-hmm. I had not only forgotten the memory, but I would have never attached that sort of significant meaning to the memory. In fact, for me, I had almost given myself more of a hard time than just saying, well, it's no wonder that little girl made that choice. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, that one of the examples I have for a six is that, She got a bad grade, and so after that, she had an awareness that she was getting a bad grade, and so she made sure she never got a bad grade again. Geez, that's totally what I did. Mm -hmm. Um, I totally became a specialist in anything I knew. You know, my background was in psychology, and I leaned into that, and I didn't want to take any of the electives because the electives Mm -hmm. are like maybe out of my wheelhouse, and maybe I won't be competent And um, it wasn't that I didn't resonate with the story. It was that I wasn't aware of how much I did resonate with the story. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be true so often in the written word. I can see why for so many, many years people didn't really want the Enneagram wisdom written down. Mm-hmm. because it is really hard for another person to put into words what our internal experience is. 
Yeah. Whereas having the conversation is a little bit easier, if not always completely comfortable. Hey, if you're enjoying this podcast, you might be interested in what else Teresa has to offer. From intro classes to individual assessments to one-on-one sessions and advanced classes, Teresa has a lot going on. To learn more and to sign up for the waitlist for upcoming classes, visit TeresaMcBean.com. Admittedly, like I feel like I've been um, a huge part of why this is the case. Um, in, in some ways, I, I don't think that I'm like totally fluff, but um, I think that the way that Instagram in particular has propelled the Enneagram, like the direction it's propelled the Enneagram into is like the space of, of really having a lot of people who they follow all the Enneagram accounts. They read everything, but they've never read a book. So when I say intelligence centers, they have no clue what that means. Mm-hmm. We're even just saying like, oh, I'm a healthy type, blah, 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 you know? And I, and so like, so I don't, I don't do that. Or I don't think about that. And this really drives me nuts because I'm like, no, no, like, the whole point is not that you like suddenly become like perfect. Like the whole idea is that you just see those things coming up. So sometimes when you are growing, you're going to see those, those like little lights come on more often. And just like, you know, you reading that and being like, I don't really resonate with this, but then being able to like, because you have that level of awareness, you're like, Oh, there it is. There it is. There There it is. is. And it's just starts um, coming up and you can observe it. And I just think that that's so important for us to like, remember, because I encounter so many people who are like, I read this one book and now I'm an expert and I'm very healthy. And I'm like, I love that for you. Love it. How is that working in your life? Like, how Can is that? You see it? How are you applying it? Yeah. Oh, you're going to love this story then. So in the greater community that I live in, Evidently, there was a teacher from a really long time ago that taught that you you were this type, but that you could be redeemed. So they used the language like, I'm a redeemed seven. And I was like, what the hell does that even mean? What do you mean you're redeemed? I didn't. And when I asked the question, maybe hopefully a little kinder than that. Um, people couldn't tell me, except it was like, I got the feeling that if you were redeemed, you didn't really have to worry about your blind spots anymore. You didn't have to worry about these uncomfortable stories about yourself that you're like, I can't believe other people might be able to see this behavior in me. Um, and I, I just, I still don't understand that. I like words like integrating. I like words like getting more self-aware. I like thinking about self-awareness as opposed to um, self-analysis, right? Yeah. As good places to be. And it feels to me, my internal experience is a lot like Lego pieces that kind of come together. I'm a head Mm -hmm. type. So Mm -hmm. my internal experiences (laughs) is that these Lego pieces have been floating around in my head and all of a sudden they come together and they fall down into my heart. I mean, it literally feels like that. And the weird thing about it is, 
is that I don't actually have any thoughts about what the shape of the pieces are. Mm. Like it's as if my head goes offline long enough for it to end up in the heart, but there is this sort of knowing in my body that it was good work. But I can't like think my way through it, which probably is an okay place to be for a head type. Yeah. Well, so. and that's the whole thing about the integration, right? Like um, I always talk in my workshops too about this concept of like the honeymoon effect and the sleeper effect. So okay. um, this there's this paper that I loved it by a psychologist named Richard Boyatzis, and he talks about um, intentional change and and how to actually do sustainable change over time. Um, I'm so sorry about all of these crazy noises that are hopefully you're not hearing that are coming from outside. Um, but yeah, so he talks about, um, you know, right after a growth event, we're like, Oh my gosh, I'm doing it. I am applying the things. It's like, you know, coming off of that retreat high where you're just like feeling it. And then, you know, you start seeing like your old self come back out and you're like, wow, I really didn't learn anything. But actually what you were describing is happening in the background. It's the sleeper effect. Like those changes that you were trying to really intentionally make, they typically kind of become integrated six to 12 months later. Right. And that's the thing that I think we forget. And even for me, I think that this is like something where even for me as someone who is talking about the Enneagram a lot and talking about these things, I, a lot of the time, I'm like, I don't feel like I'm old enough, though, <laughs> to really talk about this in a way that people can really not 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 talk about it in a way that other people will get, but talk about it in a way that feels like this is my experience, because I do feel like 20 years, like, is a much better, you know, understanding of how the Enneagram can sink in than just a few years. Do you want me to bust your bubble on this podcast or should we wait for part two? <laughs> oh my gosh, tell me. Well, I'm 66. Psychology background, lots of systems studied, a lot of time spent um, in the field of recovery been studying the Enneagram for a really long time. The older I get, the more I feel like a student and the less expert I feel. And that is sort of also a problem of a six, not taking responsibility and ownership of their own authority. Um, And so I say that, understanding that that is also true, but... I think at my age, the mystery of all this seems so clear to me. And that sleeper, I love that idea of the sleeper effect. And because I come, you know, through 20-some years of working with people who either desperately want to get sober or don't want to get sober at all but are forced into treatment, and in 20-some years, I can't predict who makes it to sustain sobriety and who doesn't, it's no predicting. It's not about will. It's not about willingness. It's not about access to the best treatment facilities. It's mysterious. So I hope that what that means is that the older we get, the more experience we have, 
the looser we hold things almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so sorry to bust your bubble. Yeah, I don't know if it'll get. No, but I do think there's <laughs> wisdom in that. Yeah. yeah. And, or maybe I'm just I, a really slow learner. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, just, I think that that is something. Like, I, I think that, especially in the last couple of years, even looking at my own life, seeing how much more comfortable I feel with the things that I don't know yet. Mm-hmm. And two years ago, I was like, I have to seem like I know it all. Like, okay, here's a really silly example. Um, my neighbors asked my husband and I to play uh, slow pitch softball. Okay. Now, I will tell you that I struck out in t-ball in the fifth grade. And I have not picked up a baseball bat since, okay? <laughs> like, that is classic three for you. Like, I do not think do things that I don't think I'm going to be good at, right? right? So even though I am athletic, like, I played other sports, I, like, have thrown lots of things in my life, <laughs> um, you know, that I was supposed to be throwing, like, a shot put or otherwise. Um, but, no, I – so they asked us to play, and I – I was like, yeah, sure. Sounds fun. Like it's been hard to meet people. My husband and I both work from home. We moved at the very beginning of the pandemic. We don't know anyone. So we're like, sure. So my husband told me a few weeks later, he's like, after the first game, he's like, I'm honestly shocked that you, one, that you said yes, two, that you go every week and you have fun. And three, that you're not like freaking out about it because he was like two years ago. I don't think that you would have done this. So you would have shown up one time, been like, wow, I'm bad at this. Or like, I'm not the best at this and never gone again. And I'm like, yeah, I guess that's true. Like, and I just am a lot more comfortable with not being good at it. I love that. And, you know, um, I think you just hit on something that if that's the only thing we hit on in this, it, it leaves my heart very happy because one of the things that I say in my classes when I'm working with folks is if you're telling me how great you've gotten at your virtue, I'm going to ask a few follow-up questions. But if someone close to you gives you information about something you're doing that is different, that catches their attention, and it fits right with, with a, a growth path for yourself, don't talk yourself out of that because that's good wisdom right there. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a similar experience in recent weeks of being given some specific feedback that was much closer to who I would aspire to be um, in conscious contact with my virtue. And I'm really trying to hold on to that as a memory and say, you saw it. You had no reason to give me that information. These were These were from sources that needed nothing from me and didn't know that this was something that would have really meant something to me to be told. And um, that is one of the things that to me is encouraging about the Enneagram is not only is it a map, but like the road signs are there. Like it, it provides you like objective feedback, but I feel like the better feedback is when you get it from your significant other or for somebody you work with or a stranger uh, in a moment with you than me trying to manufacture it for myself. Yeah. Yes, I totally agree. And I think that is such a good 
puts like such a fine point on why that problem of like I'm a redeemed seven is such a problem. Right. Because not only is it claiming it for yourself with other people around you being like, oh, I don't know about that. Like, right. I, right. I just don't know about that. Right. But it's also the, this thought as if we can become somehow totally changed. Because what we're talking about is like these little small ways. Right. Like how I respond to a softball game is like not life altering. Right. 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 Like and how you respond to the situation and, and show the virtue of courage. It, you know, it's not life altering, but it is it's something like it's something there. And I just so resent the idea that we only have worth or value when we have perfected ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, uh, I could go on about that all day, but I won't. (laughs) Well, I'm going to stick with it a bit longer and tell you the story about my husband is a nine. So he's in the body center and on the triangle though. Yeah, on the triangle. Yeah, there's a lot of running around the triangle in our house. And um, we've known each other since we were kids. And um, we've been married now over 40 years. So we've been playing tennis since we were like 15. And I've never won a set off of him. And this has been very hard on me. (laughs) And um, so last year, kind of during the pandemic, part of the pandemic we said you know what we could do is we could take tennis lessons with this guy at our pool you know sweet guy and we started taking tennis lessons and I'd never had a tennis lesson in my life and I began to immediately improve I mean it was shocking (laughs) I mean it was shocking and he got so frustrated and this is where the Enneagram can be so interesting even in the most ridiculous ridiculous of mundane events which I think adds meaning to life Mm -hmm. so when we're walking off the court he goes I can hardly stand this I says what's going on he goes my body see he's talking about his body my body hits a shot and it relaxes because it says to itself from 50 years of playing tennis with you she can't get it and if she does get it she's not going to return it you do get it, and you do return it. And I'm sitting over here like a lump of clay. My body refuses to go to action because it doesn't believe that this is going to happen. And that, we were, we, we were, I was like, that's body center intelligence right there, buddy. You know, mm-hmm. like, you listen to your body and your senses all the time, and you had no idea that this was true about you. And... All of a sudden, what was a really frustrating day on the tennis court for him, (laughs) I thoroughly enjoyed it, became a really intimate connection moment for us when we were driving home. Because we, we weren't ignoring the fact that he was frustrated so that I wouldn't yell at him because I've never won a single set in 50 years of play, so how dare he get mad that I won a few more points. We had that fight before, right? But what we did is we entered into this really deep conversation about who he is in his personhood. And it wasn't about whether he should or should not have been frustrated. It was about what does that mean and what does that tell you and look at how intuitive your intelligence is in this area. And to me, 
that is sexier than me beating him in a game of tennis. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so I just, I find this to be really, really practical yeah. in the weirdest ways. All right, yeah. before we go, you've got to tell me, because I'm so fascinated by what you do, and of course I follow you, um, which can I say for, for me, learning how to follow you required support from my children. <laughs> um <laughs> Um, but you do a lot of stuff on Instagram. Tell me about that. Yeah. So um, it was both by accident and very intentional. <laughs> um, <laughs> but my Instagram started because I listened to a podcast about side hustles. And I was like, okay, well, my old side hustle was winding down. I, I want a new one. So I just hired a designer and I created coffee mugs for each Enneagram type. And the handle nine types was taken. So I turned it, I got nine types co didn't ever think that people would misread it as 90 pesco, but here we are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's very common. <laughs> and then every week somebody DMs me like, Oh my gosh, I feel like such an idiot. I have always called it 90 pesco. Anyhow, cause they're like, what does that have to do with the Enneagram anyway? But so, yeah, I think early on, I, started just asking people like their perspective on these different questions and started really writing based on that. And of course there is some trepidation with that, you know, if Mm -hmm. people are mistyped and whatnot, if you are always just regurgitating what people are, are saying, but at the same time, I was reading a lot. I was getting more training. I was getting more, you know, everything, listening to interviews. I mean, I do have, this is the most three thing about me maybe, but, um, I'm, working on my third certification with the Enneagram right now. Um, and so, but, but yeah, so, so going along with the whole process of learning from people firsthand from each of the types firsthand, and then, um, also reading and learning and understanding. Um, but yeah, so I write about these different kind of situations or topics almost, and what it's like for each of the types in it. And I think that's why it resonates so deeply with people because they are just like, wow, I, I couldn't have said it better myself, you know? Um, and so that's what I do on Instagram for the most part. Um, and yeah, I write a lot, (laughs) a lot, a lot. So, um, with that, I also teach, uh, the Enneagram to teams like in, in corporate. So actually my master's is in organizational communication and leadership. Mm-hmm. So I definitely have that background that fuses both of those sides. Um, and I do one-on-one coaching and typing sessions and I'm working on a brand new podcast. I'm really excited about, I'm not sure if it'll be out yet when, um, this is released, but, um, I also have a course that I just walk people through like what does it actually look like to apply this material in your regular life like in your daily life what does that look like yeah fascinating Um, so yeah Yeah, so you got a lot going on and all the details are going to be in the show notes and um so that people can get in contact with you but i want to know underneath all of that what's the hardest part about it because i understand that when you put yourself out there in the world, we've got a lot of different Enneagram philosophies. So what is it like for you as a three to be out there in the world and um, 
Although I wouldn't understand why this would happen, because not only do I think what you write is beautiful and true and wonderful, but I also think it's always so pretty, um, which I think is important, um, just beautifully done. What is that like for a three if you get feedback that's not just all like two thumbs up? Yeah. Well, I think that, again, the threshold for that is, you know, pretty low. So, like, it's really easy for me to get 97 amazing comments and three terrible ones and let, to let those three really go to heart. And and there are people who will literally just bite you all day about it. And I've kind of learned just to ignore that. Um, but it's definitely been a process of continually growing thicker skin, like in a lot of ways. And to say, to pull off, you know, my copy of Dare to Lead off the shelf and lean on Brene Brown and say, you know, who's in the arena, right? Right. Um, And the people who are most critical typically are not people who write about this stuff or teach about this stuff. Um, I understand that when you're talking about personality, people have a lot of things to say because it feels really offensive to be so misunderstood. So I get that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also is one of those things where the people who are being critical are not the people who are also working on this and even people whose work I don't particularly resonate with who are also Enneagram creators, I'm not going to go on their posts and, and knock them down, you know, because right. I, I know what it takes. Right. And I know that it's hard. Um, and so I think people forget a lot of the time that it is a job. And so people are like, well, you're just wanting to make money. And it's like, yeah, don't you go to work and try to get a paycheck? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> Right. Like you say, you love my work and then you're mad that I charge for it. Like, I don't understand. Right. Right. That's very confusing. Uh, Yeah. 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 I used to have, I mean, I still do have, I have a friend that's a lawyer and he, he said that um, early on in his career, um, people from his church would want to come to him for legal advice and then they would expect him not to charge them. And he's an eight, so he didn't he didn't have any trouble with that. He'd go, well, I wouldn't come to your business and take food off your shelf if you're running a market and expect not to pay for it just because we go to the same church. You know, yeah. that'll be $225, please. Um, <laughs> but that was just this idea of um, uh, feeling not valued for your effort, even if on all points, there isn't total agreement. I would think would be um, a real challenge and growing thicker skin would be great and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think it's really, what has really stuck out for me is unhooking from praise and criticism. So not using either direction as a barometer, but really evaluating, okay, am I saying something that I agree with? Am I saying something where I'm thinking through, like, what are the implications of this? Am I showing up in accordance with my values and my ethics personally? And then if if I say yes to those things and I can stand behind it, of course, if somebody has something really, like, intentional, they're like, um, hey, you need, like, you know, you need to think about this differently that's a different conversation right like I've had people who've said like okay well you need to capitalize 
this, like, for example, the deaf community or something like that. Like, and, and me being like, Oh, I, you know, I didn't know. And and like going back and, you know, so that's one thing, but um, yeah, I think it's very, I mean, it's been a process and it's a continual process too, but it, it very much is forcing me to reevaluate whose voices I listen to and what I make them mean about me as a person. Well, as a three who has a really great skill at adaptability so that you can blend and thrive anywhere, I would imagine that that would be um, a gift to yourself if you could bring that kind of energy in just to you so that you're evaluating yourself. You know, somebody said to me um, once in relationship to uh, an authority figure I had that was particularly difficult for me, they said to me, never take feedback from somebody whose life you would never want to emulate. And I was like, okay, yeah, all right, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll try to remember that. You know, but I think that's the point. Um, let me let me ask you one final question. And again, thank you so much for everything. I've appreciated this so much. I think threes will really appreciate this, um, as will all the numbers. But what do you think drives you the craziest about the stereotype of a three? What would you want if you you know if you you were going to get your last hurrah in to help somebody understand threes a little better or it, at a minimum not stereotype them um what do you think bugs you the most that you wish we all knew about you you threes yeah I think the stereotype that I really hate is it really has to do with this um perception of narcissism like this concept that threes only care about themselves they only care about themselves getting attention and they'll step on anyone to get where they want to go and I don't think that that's like I can't think of a three that I've met that is that way um and of course you know at times we all do things that we regret but um I think most threes actually do genuinely care about the people around them. Like, I think it's really hard sometimes because we've been told our entire lives that however productive you are is however worthy you are. So it's really hard to slow down enough to like be with those people. But at the end of the day, I think that threes really do care genuinely. They Threes do have feelings, right? Like threes aren't just, you know, efficiency monsters or like. You are in the heart. Monsters. You're in the heart center. Yeah right yeah so a lot I've got another question then so being in the heart center uh what is it like for you to be in the heart center but also be a person who has the capacity as I understand it to set your feelings aside if you need to in order to be productive and efficient is that true first off and if it is kind of true how do you even do that because I would imagine in the heart center that you have a lot of feelings and they're yeah. pretty close to the surface. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that I, I, I haven't always been able to identify or really resonate with emotions, mm-hmm. but I do think that I've always been like fairly emotional. Um, and 
think one of the hard things about it is just that it's like a tug of war at times of like wanting to be productive, wanting to go out and be efficient, and then also having these emotions there. And excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, For me, it is a skill that I, like, I would definitely say in my journey thus far with the Enneagram, I have worked a lot on the feelings part, like identifying and understanding and, and, and working with and sticking with my feelings. Um, that's been like the first big, you know, thing that I've tackled, I'd say. And so I've been in this process of relearning, like, okay, the pendulum went so far the opposite direction where I would never set a feeling aside. I would always process it in the moment and learning that skill of being like, okay, well, this is a skill that's available to me when I need it and learning how to not just always default to that, but to choose it when it's necessary for me to actually do the things that I want to do to serve my clients well to, you know, these other things. Um, so I'd say that that's a big part of it for me is, is learning how to, to use that as a skill. Um, but I think if we're not careful, it can easily become a thing where you just never go back to them. Like Mm. you set them aside and just never return to them. And then guess what happens? You blow up because you're not meant to always have all the feelings always bottled up. Um, and then, okay, a big thing for heart types that I have just observed. I don't know if there's any data behind this or anything. Um, I've observed that a lot of heart types, myself included, really thrive on like getting inspiration, like inspiration feelings, inspiration vibes from somebody else. Hmm. So if I'm having a day where I am like down in the dumps, but I actually have to do stuff. The two things that I use the most are like podcasts from business people that I really like, whose like thoughts and, and things I align with listening to a podcast like that or like watching a video like that or um well typically I do that first and or like a book and then hopping on like focus mates and scheduling in a time to work with a buddy um because I think as a heart type like those two things really help um really help me like be in the right emotional mindset I think it's interesting that uh, both of your strategies involve you reaching out and having the capacity for some sort of mirroring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah. really interesting. Well, gosh, I hope we can get to do this again someday. I feel like I only got to half my questions with you. <laughs> <laughs> so many things I want to know about you, your work, and also um your perspective on all the types, but particularly threes. It's just been so, so fantastic. I appreciate it so much. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, man, it's just been great. Um, I guess that that the thing that I would want to conclude with saying is that um, it feels to me like such a privilege to learn from you. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. I'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the podcast, More Than Your Number, about the Enneagram and personal growth with Teresa McBean. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to receive notifications of upcoming episodes.